Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hoffer, an aspiring church historian, and this is The Baptist Heritage, a podcast where we explore the origins of the Baptist denomination against a broad ecumenical movement from the 16th century to present day. As we move chronologically from the late 1500s, we'll be highlighting important events and personalities in Baptist history. Episode 5, John Smith the Say Baptist, Part 1. As we've seen in the previous episodes, the last decades of the 16th century were formative years for the Protestant Reformation in England. One scholar said that it was a time of entrenchment for the Puritans and exile for the Separatists. And in the meantime, another generation of nonconformists, Puritan and Separatists, was in the making. Indeed, the ideas of the previous Separatists, such as Robert Brown, Henry Barrow, and John Greenwood, had struck a nerve with those that desired to worship according to liberty of conscience. And even when later separatists sought to dissociate themselves from the Brownist moniker, they were simultaneously espousing his free church ideas. During the 1580s and 90s, Cambridge had become the academic center of the Puritan movement, but some of its more zealous students took the further step of separation. The above-mentioned leaders had all attended Cambridge, as well as Francis Johnson, the leader of the ancient church from episode 3. In this episode, we will turn our attention to yet another Cambridge student, John Smith, who was a pupil and friend of Johnson's while at the university, but later his opponent in exile. To begin, a few words must be said about the historical approach to any study concerning John Smith. The titular character has garnered the attention of a great many historians over the past two centuries, with some calling him the first identifiable Baptist and others designating him as simply a denominational forerunner, a Baptist pathfinder of sorts. To make matters more confusing, Smith's religious identity evolved over time from Puritan to Separatist to Baptist until finally at the end of his life he was absorbed into the Dutch Mennonite Church. In fact, this progression in Smith's belief and practice has made him a controversial figure for historians both in his time and ours. We won't get into the nuances of the historical debate, but it can be summed up as this. The legacy of John Smith calls into question just how much of Baptist origins are English separatist and how much are Dutch Anabaptist, and we'll cover Anabaptism in an upcoming episode. H. Leon Macbeth, author of The Baptist Heritage, recognizes Smith as, quote, founding the first identifiable Baptist church of modern times in Holland about 1609, Let us relate the story of how he arrived then and there and what is meant by the phrase, the first identifiable Baptist church. I'll go ahead and let you know that this story is significant enough that I'm dividing the episode into two parts. This is my attempt to be thorough. Here goes. Smith matriculated to Cambridge in 1586. The Biographical Register of Christ College lists him as, quote, a pupil of Francis Johnson, who was a fellow from 1584 to 1589, end quote. William Bradford of the Pilgrim Church confirms their relationship, stating, quote, Mr. Johnson, who had been his tutor, end quote. Less than two years into Smith's tutelage under Johnson, the latter was arrested for preaching a fiery sermon against the Episcopal form of church government. The succession of events in Johnson's life, his imprisonment, ejection from the university, exile, 
conversion to separatism, and leadership of the martyred Barrows Congregation in London, no doubt left a lasting impression on the young John Smith. The historian Walter Burgess puts it like this, quote, The hard case of Francis Johnson would excite a chivalrous interest in one of such an impulsive and sanguine temperament as John Smith. He would look for news of his old tutor and take special note of his career, end quote. Like other nonconformists, Smith had begun his ministry in communion with the Anglican Church, though he found its ceremonies distasteful. That is to say that he began a Puritan, conforming for a while. Following his masters, he held a fellowship at Cambridge where he worked with Samuel Ward, one of the future translators of the King James Bible. Thereafter, he was elected preacher of the city of Lincoln in the year 1600. However, this office was short-lived, as his outspoken sermons occasioned his dismissal from the post in 1602. One such discourse was his exposition on Psalm 22, in which he attacked the vainglorious preachers that, quote, kept men in the dungeon of ignorance and palpable darkness, so that the day star, Jesus Christ, cannot arise in their hearts, end quote. A frustrated smith was guided ever closer to separation, by his interactions with the ecclesiastical authorities during this time. We took some time out last episode to discuss the ascension of King James to the throne and the resulting Hampton Court Conference of 1604, which produced the King James Bible. Rather than granting the Puritans the religious reforms they sought, the conference resulted in the beginning of a new and vigorous campaign for conformity, headed by Archbishop of Canterbury Richard Bancroft. A set of 141 canon laws were issued, and all clergy were given a deadline of November 30th to either subscribe or be deposed. Principal among the canons was the written subscription of the ministers to three articles. One, that the king was supreme governor in all things civil and spiritual. Two, that the Book of Common Prayer was not unlawful and should be followed. And three, that the 39 articles should and would be followed upon pain of censure and excommunication. In the months approaching the deadline, a number of clergymen refused to subscribe and were deprived of their living, their license to preach having been revoked. Of course, preaching without a license was also forbidden by the canons, as was any religious meeting or activity in a private house. This meant that for those such as Smith, who had lost his lectureship at London, any further preaching would be considered seditious and unlawful. During this time, Smith met with a number of other Puritans who had found themselves in a similar situation to discuss what to do. The result was the formation of a secret congregation in Gainsborough in which the members joined in a covenant to, quote, "...keep whatsoever Christ our Lord hath commanded us, as it shall please him by his Holy Spirit out of his word to give knowledge therefore and ability thereunto. End quote. It must be noted that forming a covenant apart from the Church of England was quote, wicked and anabaptistical and unlawful according to Canon number twelve. Smith and his congregation at Gainsborough had gone the further step of separation. In sixteen oh six, Smith had become the pastor of the secret church at Gainsborough. Though he had previously been made a minister in the Anglican Church, he renounced his ordination, preferring instead that his authority as pastor be given to him through the congregation. 
a radical break from the Episcopalian order. Defending his call to preach, he stated, quote, I received and do maintain my ministry from that particular church whereof I am a pastor, which hath the whole power of Christ ministerial, delegated to her from Christ. End quote. When the Gainsborough Church became large enough that they were in danger of being discovered, another congregation formed at Scrooby Manor under the leadership of John Robinson. Robinson, whose story we will discuss in a future episode, was the father of the Pilgrim Church, and a number of his congregants, including William Brewster and William Bradford, are familiar names in American history as they were passengers aboard the Mayflower and governing officials in the colonies. In fact, William Bradford's Journal of Plymouth Plantation is an indispensable first-hand account of the events regarding the separatist persecution in England, migration to Holland, and settlement in the New World. The Robinson and Smith congregations eventually parted ways, with their stories diverging at important points of history and theology. But all that is necessary to know now is that their ministry in England shared the same persecuted origin, and that they were the respective pastors of the local congregations in Gainsborough and Scrooby. One of the parishioners of Smith's church was Thomas Helwes, a wealthy lawyer and a capable biblical expositor. He is also the founder of the First Baptist Church on English Soil, a topic we will soon discuss. Helwes and Smith had become close friends, united in their zealousness to cast off the persecutions of the established church and worship God freely. Thomas Helwes and his wife, Joan, had been increasingly harassed by the ecclesiastical authorities and were easily persuaded to aid the Smith congregation. At the height of the persecutions, Joan Helwes and another member were apprehended and carried off to prison for three months. John Smith had also twice narrowly escaped being captured. Additionally, some wealthy members of the congregation were summoned to court to pay a fine, and when they did not attend, warrants were issued for their arrest. William Bradford recalls the growing intensity of the authorities. Quote, Some were taken and clapped up in prisons. Others had their houses beset and watched night and day and hardly escaped their hands, and the most were made to fly and leave their houses and habitations and the means of their livelihood. End quote. The anxiety was too much to bear. They were not welcome in their homeland, nor permitted to leave. John Smith recalled the case of his tutor, Francis Johnson, who had migrated to Holland with his congregation, the ancient church. At that time, the religious liberties granted in the Low Countries, which is the modern-day Netherlands, were well known in England and on the continent. If there was no possibility of remaining peaceably in England, the Gainsborough Church might also seek a resting place in Holland. Again, William Bradford's journal attests to this, quote, Seeing that there was no hope of their continuance, thereby a joint consent they resolved to go into the Low Countries, end quote. It is believed that Thomas Helwes made arrangements for the migration and either completely or partially financed the venture. John Robinson seems to affirm this, saying, quote, The truth is, it was Mr. Helwes who, above all, furthered this passage into the strange countries, and if any brought oars, he brought sails, as I could show in many other particulars, and as all that were acquainted with the manner of our coming over can witness with me. End quote. 
and so in the years of 1607 and 1608 they migrated to Holland, where they heard there was freedom of religion for all, and it was said that many from London who had been exiled and persecuted for the same cause had gone to live. There were rumors in the Nottinghamshire area about the imminent escape of the Gainsborough and Scrooby congregations. Contemporary literature tells us this much. Richard Bernard, the Vicar of Worksop, and originally a co-conspirator of the Separatists, recanted his separation and returned to the Church of England, only to vigilantly attack the heirs of his old friends through a number of publications. John Smith and his congregation were called malcontents, Flyers, Anabaptists, and Brownists, and even though their nonconforming peers such as Richard Bernard agreed with the majority of their ideology, they preferred the purification of the church from within rather than the separation from it. William Bradford's journal records that, quote, The ports were shut against them so that they had to seek secret means of conveyance to bribe the captains of ships. Their first attempt at escape was unsuccessful, as the captain betrayed them, and a number were arrested and their goods intercepted. One of the most moving and pitiful episodes in Bradford's Plymouth Plantation details another attempt at escape that occurred the following spring, presumably in 1608. The same group of people had hired a Dutchman to meet with them in a secret location and take them over to Amsterdam. As the men were boarding, the authorities came and the captain departed in a panic. The women and children had yet to board, and the men who had already boarded were separated from their families. But it was too late. The men watched in tears from a distance as their families were carried off. In the ensuing months, the women and children, homeless and destitute, were escorted to and fro by the authorities, who knew not what to do with them. It was a trying time, no doubt. But their great affliction made their causes so popular that in the end, they were released and shown great charity, through which they were reunited with their families in the Netherlands. The story is best recounted in Bradford's own words. Quote, the poor men already aboard were in great distress, for their wives and children, left thus to be captured and destitute of help, and for themselves too, without any clothes but what they had on their backs, and scarcely a penny about them all their possessions being aboard the bark, now seized. It drew tears from their eyes, and they would have given anything to be ashore again, but all in vain, there was no remedy, they must sadly part. Being thus apprehended, they were hurried from one place to another, till in the end, the officers knew not what to do with them, for to imprison so many innocent women and children seemed unreasonable, and would cause an outcry, and to send them home again was difficult, for they alleged, as was true, that they had no homes to go to, for they had sold or otherwise disposed of their housings and livings. I must not omit, however, to mention the fruit of it all, for by these public afflictions their cause became famous, and led many to inquire into it, and their Christian behavior left an impression on the minds of many. Some few shrank from these first conflicts, and no wonder, but many more came forward with fresh courage and animated the rest. In the end, notwithstanding the storms of opposition, they all got over, some from one place and some from another, and met together again with no small rejoicing. End quote. 
That does it for today's episode. Next time we'll be discussing part two of John Smith's story, including the landing at Amsterdam and his theological positions. Additionally, we'll see him reject the infant baptism of the Anglican Church and baptize himself and his congregation, hence his nickname, John Smith the Sabaptist. We will also get to know Thomas Helwes a bit more and his significance in founding the First Baptist Church on English soil. That's right, I said English soil. Spoiler alert, he's going to leave Amsterdam and return to England. But I don't want to get too ahead of myself. I hope you're enjoying the narrative of the Separatists. I know it can be a lot of information to digest, so please remember that in the show notes, there's a link to a full transcript complete with footnotes and citations. There is a lot of additional information in the footnotes. It may be helpful to print it and reference it periodically. Thanks again to everyone who has supported the podcast so far. If you feel so inclined, please leave a review, as it will help others find the show. And as always, thank you for listening, and peace be with you.